This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. Since the war in Ukraine began, Vladimir Zelensky has been calling for the West to supply arms to push back against Russia's immense firepower. In particular, he's called for tanks. Now, Western tanks are finally heading to Ukraine for what promises to be a spring escalation in the fighting. In this episode from our global partner podcast, Today in Focus, The Guardian's defence and security editor, Dan Sabah, reporting from eastern Ukraine, explores why tanks are so critical in this conflict and what this increased support could mean for the outcome of the war. Here's Noshi Iqbal. On Wednesday, President Zelensky made his first visit to Britain since Russia invaded Ukraine. Thank you so much. He was on a mission to rally Western support. I have come here and stand before you on behalf of the brave. Stood incongruous in the Houses of Parliament, dressed in his signature military green sweatshirt and khaki cargo pants, Zelensky made an urgent plea. Give us fighter jets, he said, for a chance of Ukraine to be free. And I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. This is just the beginning of a long negotiation. And Rishi Sunak doesn't seem ready to commit just yet. When it comes to the provision of military assistance to Ukraine, nothing is off the table. And that's because we're determined to ensure that Vladimir, the president and his people can be victorious. But in recent weeks, there has been one hard-won breakthrough. A commitment to supply modern Western tanks. The Ukrainian crews who arrived last week will be using Challenger 2 tanks to defend Ukraine's sovereign territory next month. And as spring approaches, the war in Ukraine is now set to enter a new phase. We've seen a period of relative stasis, which is beginning to give way to gradual Russian advances in the east, while the Ukrainians are holding fire largely because they're waiting for Western weaponry to arrive. For The Guardian's defence and security editor, Dan Saber, it feels like the calm before the coming storm. Driving through hours of farmland in ice and snow. I'm on my way to Donbass, actually, where I'm going to spend two or three days trying to see what the frontline situation is. So we've been driving about uh, six, seven hours to get this far from Kyiv. Uh, the Russians are advancing in multiple locations, not advancing very fast, but advancing nevertheless. And um, the fight in the east has been getting, unfortunately, it's been getting hotter. The hotter the war gets, the more Ukraine says it needs Western weaponry. So what will it get? And when? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, why tanks could be crucial to Ukraine winning the war. So Dan, Ukraine has had this big commitment from the West on tanks. But can we go back to first principles? And can you just explain to me what exactly is a tank for? What does it do? Why is this old lumbering tech still being used in 2023? And how important is it 
for this war. The tank is the ultimate defended fighting weapon. It has thick armour, a large gun and track wheels that are able to go anywhere. And ultimately, if you're trying to, in Ukraine's case, drive the Russians out from fortified positions, tanks are the thing that can keep going because what happens when you do an offensive, you meet resistance, people start shooting back at you. And what tanks can do is kind of keep ploughing on and driving on and keep taking the fight to the enemy. And so you can start to go forward. There was a debate that tanks were obsolete, that future wars would be hybrid wars, they'd be fought online, they'd be fought deniably. The idea of sort of mass armies competing on the battlefield was gone for the past. Surely no one would be so crazy as to invade another country. Well, of course, that's precisely what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, Ukraine's problem has always been that it has historically relied on post-Soviet, indeed Soviet standard equipment and tanks and for its weapons of all kinds against uh, a Russian armed forces which uses more of them and has to a much greater extent modernised them. So we've seen Ukraine say, look, to win this war, we need to get the most modern Western weapons we can. And it's begged and pleaded, frankly, since the war began for any number of types of weapons, most of which is gradually obtained. But one of the things Ukraine really wanted were tanks. I'm truly grateful to all of you for the weapons you have provided. But we have to speed up. Air defense and artillery, armored vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you and which actually will make the victory. Without tanks, it's much harder to prosecute an offensive. With them on land, at least, it becomes possible. And how have they been used so far? Do we know how many Russian tanks versus Ukrainian tanks this war started out with? So at the beginning of the war, Russia had, according to the IISS think tank, the people who count these things, 2,927 main battle tanks, T-72s, T-80s, T-90s. Now, Ukraine had about 858 on the same count. So it's outnumbered on the face of it by three to one. But what you've also got to understand is Russia has lots of older tanks from the Cold War era in storage. And there are some estimates that Russia has as many as 10,000 once you start dusting those down. And that's what has been happening as this war has gone on. Wow. So outnumbered three to one. And you can understand the sense of urgency that Ukraine feels here in calling on the West to supply tanks. But how has that gone for them? Well, it's been incredibly frustrating for Ukraine. Ukraine's been wanting tanks for months and months and has been stuck on the politics of one particular country, that country being Germany. Germany makes the most successful tank in Europe the Leopard, Leopard 2 tank. There are over sort of 2,000 around Europe with various different militaries. So Ukraine's long had its eye on it, arguing that if we could just have one type of tank, essentially in large numbers, then we'd have less of a problem with training, with spare parts, and that would make things a lot simpler. The problem with that was the way arms deals work is that even if a manufacturer like Britain or Germany sells its arms to another country, it retains control over their re-export. So even if Germany sold its tanks to Poland, for example, and Poland wished to give them to Ukraine, as it has done for some time, the Germans would exercise a veto and say, no, you can't do that. So what this began to come down to was an arm wrestle, if you like, between Ukraine's desire for tanks and Germany's reluctance to supply them. The German defence minister, Boris Pistorius, has denied that his country is isolated within NATO as it continues to resist sending battle tanks to Ukraine. And why is Germany reluctant to supply? Well, the answer 
there, of course, is history. It's the long shadow of the Second World War. And there was a particular worry here for a newish Chancellor and Olaf Scholz in actually sending German tanks to Ukraine in the sense that it brought those memories of World War II back even closer and would certainly hand a propaganda gift to the Russians who are always trying to argue that it's fighting the World War II all over again in Ukraine. So despite Germany's reluctance, it does have what seems like the best machinery in the world. But what makes the Leopard 2 so special? Why is it better than all the other tanks? Well, might not be better than the American Abrams tank, but any Western tank is going to be better than anything the Ukrainians had. You know, Leopard 2, for example, have just better night vision, better thermal optics. And it's also just sort of conventional diesel-powered tank. I mean, if you want to go for the American tanks, only a superpower would build tanks like this. They rely on aviation fuel because they've got a jet turbine in them. So you're talking about gas guzzling of phenomenal proportions, around three gallons to the mile, not three miles to the gallon. So the US said, we can't really supply our own tanks because it's not really the thing that will work for Ukraine logistically. But what Germany was saying was, well, if America were to join us, this would look more like a team decision and we would feel a whole lot less exposed. It was a drawn out process, but in the end, Germany did relent. Ist es rasch zwei Panzerbataillone zusammen mit unseren Verbündeten bereitzustellen? And the big concession it extracted was the Americans did offer 31 of their own Abrams tanks as well. And Britain's chipped in with 14, uh, a squadron of Challenger 2 tanks. Today I can announce the most significant package of combat power to date to accelerate Ukrainian success and was actually the first to make an announcement that it would give tanks to Ukraine, and that was really to try and encourage the Germans. Uh, it has been reported that obviously Poland is very keen to donate some leopard, as is Finland, uh, who have expressed. Uh, all of this currently relies on the German government's decisions, not only whether the Germans will supply their own leopards, but whether or not they'll give permissions for others. What the Ukrainians are saying is they're expecting to see 120 to 140 tanks appear in the first wave, I think when we see them in the country, that'll be the moment we're sure we've got those kind of numbers. So on Monday, the first Leopard tank pledged to Ukraine arrived in Poland from Canada, and there are many more promised. Four combat-ready battle tanks from Canada make their way to war-battered Ukraine, the latest NATO country to provide this increased support. Dan, how quickly will the Ukrainians actually be able to put them into action? There's a point here about training. It seems to be a feeling that it takes somewhere between two and three months to train how to use these things effectively. The Ukrainians have sort of shown an ability to watch YouTube videos and learn how to use weapons. And I suspect they probably will learn in more like two months rather than three. But there is just a sheer logistics challenge in getting the tanks in place. And of course, it's not just about the tanks themselves, their drivers. It's about those spare parts, training up those engineers, being able to have sort of centers where they can be repaired. So I think somewhere around the far side of Easter feels most likely at this stage of the game. And one of the reasons you're starting to see Russia sort of press with these um, increasingly intense ground attacks in the uh, eastern Donbass region is because the Russians are thinking, well, hang on a minute, we want to start attacking before Ukraine brings these heavy weapons to bear. And the way things are going, we might have a few weeks to play with. So, you know, let's start now. Daniel Boffy, you're The Guardian's chief reporter, and you recently wrote about how Ukrainian forces have acquired new tanks. Now, Dan Saber told us that there is a bit of a wait to get the much-needed tanks from Western allies onto the battlefield. So what are the Ukrainians doing in the meantime? Well, the Ukrainians have been very savvy. I mean, right from the start, the, the Russians 
have been leaving hardware all over <laughs> the front line. When the attempt on Kyiv fell apart, they left a lot of hardware. And there was a very famous image of a the Ukrainian farmer pulling a tank away from the front line with a tractor. <laughs> and what's been happening is those tanks have been heading towards factories all over Ukraine to be refurbished, repaired, and then put back into battle, but this time fighting for the Ukrainians. Well, can you give me a sense of the numbers? How many tanks have been reclaimed in this way? It's extremely difficult to tell, but Orinx, which is a, a Dutch open source website, they basically go through telegram channels and social media channels and look for photographs of hardware that's been damaged, captured, destroyed. And they have about 500 tanks that they know for a fact have been captured by the Ukrainians, but that will be a tiny fraction. The Russians came with a huge number of tanks into battle not necessarily always the most modern tanks you can have, but they came in with a lot and they've left an awful lot, particularly uh, the Kharkiv counteroffensive. The Ukrainians just picked and chose the, uh, all sorts of hardware, lethal machinery, tanks included. Dan, there's a twisted irony there because it sounds like Russia could actually be the biggest donor of tanks to the Ukrainian forces because of the way that they're abandoning them. You visited one of the factories where these tanks are being refurbished. Can you tell me what that operation looks like close up? Yeah, well, we were keen to get into a, a facility that was turning these tanks Ukrainian. It was actually quite difficult to find anyone who would let us do it. The Ukrainian government is extremely tight on security. It wouldn't let me anywhere near. But then I heard that um, a fantastic organisation called the Sergei Pritula Foundation, which is a... Sergei Pritula is a bit like a... Vladimir Zelensky sort of figure. He was um, an entertainer, TV presenter, comedian, went into politics, and he's used that following to encourage crowdsourcing for all sorts of things. And he decided to put some money into a facility that could refurbish tanks. So I asked him whether it's possible to go visit the facility that, that they had, and it was. Um, and I've got to be careful in terms of telling you what it was before because the Russians would be able to locate using that information. But from the outside... I wasn't expecting much because it all looked a bit battered and worn. And and then we opened the creaky door and it looked like a sort of tank graveyard. There was this sort of mist of exhaust fumes and across the expanse of this huge warehouse, there were must be about 10 vehicles, you know, five of them tanks or so. And then sort of in the corners, banging away, using soldering away, fire sort of spurting up. There were the engineers, all you could really make out from them were their eyes because they were so grubby and dirty from the oil and the hard work and the toil of it all. The tanks were kind of like, they just sort of thrown around this room. And there's one which was just sort of in the corner, had a load of dead leaves on it. And it was just sort of flung in the corner and they were going to get around to it. Uh, and in between the tanks and the, all the armoured vehicles were sort of cannibalised engines, piles of cylinders. And just, it, it looked like chaos to me. But actually there was order and there was some real genius going on in terms of changing how these tanks operate, modifying them, rescuing them from the rubbish tip, really. So, Dan, how old do these tanks look and what kind of condition are they in when they're recovered? The age range varies widely and, and really quite telling about the stresses on the Russian military machine because we had a, a 2017 tank, not the most modern tank you can get in the Russian army, but pretty modern. But then we also had tanks which were 50 years old. I mean, you know, came into service in 1970. I mean, it looked pretty good to me, but they said, no, this old beast is no good for war. And what they'd done is they cut the turret off of the top of it. And we're going to, have to sort of add armour to the top. 
and we're going to turn it into an extraction vehicle for when other tanks broke down on the front line. This big monster would be able to pull them out of the, the mud. Well, can you tell me about the engineers who are doing the work on these tanks? Who are they and where have they come from? There's between 30 and 50 people working in the facility at any one time. And quite a big age range, yeah. So you've got people in their 20s, you've got people in their 50s. About 70% of them are people who used to work in this facility before, which I apologise that I can't say what it was, but it would be fair to say it was civil engineering. And, you know, they're learning new skills, entirely new skills. This was not a military facility, so they are learning from the ground up what to do with a tank. But then the final third are people from the occupied territories who have fled and are now trying to put their skills into best use. And they know that what they're doing is going to help the soldiers who are trying to liberate the villages and the towns that they used to live in. So you got to speak to some of them on your tour of this facility. What what kind of things did they tell you about the work, what it meant to them, and how difficult they found it? I thought it would be sort of just psychologically quite difficult to be around these machines that we sent out to kill them. Actually, they were just absolutely delighted, in the words of one, to get them for free. The chiefs of military squads calling us and say, oh, guys, I have three tanks, three Russian tanks. Oh, right. And uh, like one of them is totally damaged, uh, second of them have the uh, like normal engine, it's working, and third of them, I don't know, uh, something else damaged. Uh, just can, can you make uh, from two tanks from this three? And we are doing this. What's always slightly jarring is the lack of reflection on death. But this is war. It's really brutal. So at one point I asked this tank here, did people die in this tank? And the, the guy said, oh, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of arms and legs in it, and a lot of blood. So, yeah, they didn't feel what I potentially would have felt about um, what they were doing. They felt this was a gift and they were going to get them on the front line as quickly as possible. They were very pleased with the pace at which they work. But also there was really a real element of fear walking into that facility day in, day out, knowing that it would be absolutely the prime target for the Russians and the fact that they're well within range. In fact, we had a missile land not too far away while we were in there. We had some air raid sirens going off. They know they're risking their lives to, to do this uh, every bit as much as the soldier um, in the trenches. It does sound like a really grisly business. What exactly did they have to do to get these tanks back into shape for fighting on the Ukrainian side. I mean, the job varies from tank to tank, but the first task always is to get rid of that Z, the, you know, the famous sign that um, the Russians daubed on their military hardware to signify that they were going to battle into Ukraine. There was one tank which took a direct hit on its turret. That needed an awful lot of work. They needed to build a whole new gun firing system. But meanwhile, also, its armoury had been warped by the heat of battle, so they need to build new armour on, on the sides. They would put on a camera for the back so you could you see it out there. You could, all, I mean, they were constantly modifying these, trying to improve them as well as just fixing them. So we can uh, make uh, some interesting modification of this uh, vehicle so they make... Uh, uh, then more safety. So if we got a tank in, they'd probably be able to get it out back on the battlefield within a couple of months. They work seven days a week. It's pretty much 24-7 operation, which is incredibly grueling because that place is not a nice place to work. It's cold and dirty, grimy, noisy. You can hardly hear yourself think. The exhaust fumes um, from the tanks that are testing their engines is quite overpowering. They wouldn't meet any health and safety regulations in, uh, <laughs> in Europe, I wouldn't have thought. 
And how much does it all cost? How much budget does it take to refashion one of these tanks? Well, no one's making any money, obviously. And actually, peanuts is what they're working with because the Sergei Petula Foundation, they gave 200,000 US dollars to this facility. And I think they get a little state aid, but all their parts are sourced from other battlefields. There's a guy there, um, Bogdan, who's, who's sort of, I said, do you, know, do you have any sort of organisational structure around sourcing parts and, and the rest of it? And he's sort of, no, there's sort of databases in my head. It does feel very much like a startup, but in terms of the numbers of the vehicles they're getting out, they've got 15 out, which is you know, pretty impressive. I think the Germans have offered 13 tanks and this place has provided 15. What happens to these tanks once they're shipped out? I mean, it sounds obvious, but do you know how the Ukrainian army trained for the different capabilities of these tanks? Well, luckily, you know, with the Western tanks, it's going to take a lot of training. They're very, very different. But these Ukrainian forces know how to deal with these tanks. It's not hard. I mean, the problem is that these Russian tanks are not top of the range. Their guns don't have the power. They're not as mobile. You know, even the 2017, the most modern tank they had there, it's a Soviet model and it has that sense of an old vehicle, it doesn't feel top of the range. And the big problem is that the ammunition in these models of tanks, they're inside, it's very dangerous. If these tanks get hit, they blow up and they kill the crew. While Western tanks, they have ammunition outside the main body of the tank. So really helpful, it's great, but it's a dangerous tank to drive. Well, Dan, as you've said, Hundreds of tanks have been abandoned by the Russians on the battlefield. They're being reclaimed by the Ukrainians. At least 15 have gone out back into war. How much will all this have cost Russia? I mean, Russia came in with a huge number of tanks and armoured vehicles. They have lost an awful lot. And the very fact that they are using the older vehicles uh, in some of the hotspots does indicate that they are perhaps running out. The thing is, though, they do have the capacity to rebuild. There's like nowhere else in the world, really. They have the facilities to pump out these vehicles. The one thing that might upset their rebuilding is the sanctions on computer chips and the rest of it. You know, if they can't access that sort of stuff, then that will slow them down. They seem to be mobilizing more people and more vehicles at the moment. Kiev is constantly warning of another assault. So, yes, they've lost a lot, but they've got plenty more. And all that said, uh, knowing that they're abandoning tanks and they're being reused, have the Russian forces changed strategy in any way? The counter-assault in Kharkiv, which was last autumn, the Ukrainians picked up a vast amount of material. The, 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 the people in this facility were saying it's like walking into a big shop and going, yes, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that. It was, it was, it was absolutely sort of Christmas. Just like a, a big... Uh... Uh, big shop where you can uh, <laughs> walk through this uh, these machines and oh, okay, I will give this and this. Okay. The Russians have learned their lesson from that, and the counter assault in Kherson, which pushed the Russians to the south of that, the Russians left an awful lot less. And in fact, the generals and, and Putin and that made much of the fact that Russia had taken all their material back. The supply of vehicles, I think, is much diminished, but there's still some stuff coming in, so there's plenty more work for these people to get on with. And obviously you said it is quite brave and dangerous work, and I wondered if you felt in any way on edge or in danger being somewhere like that. Well, yeah. I mean, we travelled quite a long way to get here. 
about half an hour before we arrived at the facility. We we got an escort um, to the facility because it's a secret location. But yeah, we put on our flat jackets, put on our helmets, and yeah, uh, my constant thought at these points is, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? Uh, so yeah, no, I do. I definitely feel on edge, and I don't particularly enjoy it at all. Um, but I think the reason why these people wanted to tell the world about what they're doing is they want to show the West that they really are working hard to build up their forces without Western aid. So therefore, every penny that the West spends on them, they couldn't do without it. They are squeezing what they can from what they have. And that's why they wanted to show this off. They want to say, look, this is what we're having to do. Give us more. Coming up. Could Ukraine's new and old tanks change the direction of this war? Dan Sabo, we've heard a lot of negotiation around these tanks and about their capabilities. How much of a difference could they really make for Ukraine to this war? Tanks aren't a sort of war-winning weapon in isolation. You have to understand that tanks need infantry, ground troops to support them. The Russians tried to use tanks without ground support and they found themselves being ambushed from all sides by Ukrainian light forces armed only with bazookas, British enlaws and American javelins. So you need tanks to work, to, to combine with infantry, to combine with artillery, other armoured vehicles to move people around, secure on the battlefield. This is known as a doctrine of combined arms warfare. And this is how modern land wars are fought. If they can do that, then they've got something with some real potency. But it has to be said there are things they're missing. And the most obvious thing that they're missing in all this is combat air power, because generally in modern warfare, you rely on fast jets to be able to bomb enemy positions in order to sort of prosecute an offensive. And so uh, Ukraine has got you know, most of the building blocks it needs, but it doesn't have all of them. There are now dozens of these promised tanks making their way to Ukraine, and some have already arrived in neighbouring Poland. But with the discussion now moving on to fighter jets, and albeit all of that's at quite an early stage, how worried should we be about a direct confrontation between the Western coalition and Russia? That's something that NATO allies led by the US are very, very keen to avoid. And, you know, there will be no direct NATO intervention. There will be no Western troops in Ukraine. We will not fight a war against Russia in Ukraine. Direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is World War Three. So, yes, you could argue it's a proxy war, i.e. that the West is supplying Ukraine with weapons. But I think the reality is there's no danger of NATO getting directly involved. And Russia would be mad to take on the Western military alliance. Now, there is a different point, though. This does serve Russia's internal propaganda purposes very well. The Kremlin wants to paint to its own people that it's fighting all of NATO, that it is fighting the West, that it's a rerun of the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, as it's known in Russia. And certainly, this may well serve Kremlin's purposes in that respect. But that's not something that the West need fear in and of itself. Periodically, Russian leaders, if not Putin himself, sometimes the former president, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, will to raise a nuclear threat, that there was always a risk that if a great power, nuclear power is defeating conventional war, it then might have to resort to using nuclear weapons. I mean, terrifying, bonkers are some of the words you could use to describe that. 
But the reality is that these nuclear threats should not be taken too seriously. And what they're really about and, and what Russia's nuclear weapon doctrine is about, as indeed the, the, the US or the UK, is don't attack us on our own soil, because if we feel like we're fundamentally attacked, then yes, you know, all bets are off. We might well attack you. And that really is the purpose of not just nuclear weapons, but above all, nuclear rhetoric. So these things get said. They're meant to scare us. They should not be taken very seriously, other than Russia's underlying message, which is NATO troops must militarily stay out of the war. And that is indeed what is happening. Dan, ultimately, everyone's desperately looking for a turning point in this war, something that will just bring it to an end. Are these tanks the answer? And even if it's not the end game, is this war about to substantially change now? I think... The war is certainly about to change. We're about to see as the weather turns, I think, possibly the most sustained and serious piece of fighting in Europe since World War II. Both sides have wanted to mount an offensive. Russia's mobilised as many as 500,000 troops. Ukraine has now got all these Western weapons. So who's going to win from this? Nobody quite knows if Ukraine's been given enough combat power from the West to be able to really threaten the Russians. You have to suspect that it probably hasn't quite. And the history of this conflict so far has been the West has been willing to come to Ukraine's military aid, but always a little bit after the fact or a little bit when it's on the back foot or just enough to keep Ukraine fighting, but not quite enough to strike a, a decisive blow. But Anyone who says they really know what's going to happen doesn't know what they're talking about. War is inherently uncertain and inherently unpredictable. It's possible that, for example, Ukraine will break through the Russian lines in the south of the country and be able to cut off the land bridge to Crimea that Russia's built up. If it could do that suddenly and quickly in a kind of blitzkrieg-style offensive using tanks, that could potentially change the picture. But there are a few surprises on the map. So Russia knows that's coming too. So all in all, we are heading for an uncertain period, a period where there is more weaponry, more people on the battlefield. And tragically, we're heading for a bloody period in which, um, unfortunately, a lot more people are going to die before we really know where this settles. So I think this year is going to be a depressing and dispiriting one in which we're going to see an awful lot more combat, I'm afraid to say. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was The Guardian's Defence and Security Editor Dan Sabah and Chief Reporter Daniel Boffey speaking with Noshin Iqbal on Today in Focus. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles with sound design by Solomon King. The executive producer of Today in Focus is Phil Maynard. Additional production on this episode by Camilla Hannon. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and we'll be back with another episode of Full Story tomorrow. <laughs>